Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. I hope you had a nice weekend. I spent mine... I did a little post-traumatic winning private lesson. And so we'll talk about that here. And... Uh, yeah, so Mac, what is that? Well, so for people that contact me and something really terrible has happened, they've seen my program... Um, what I will offer to do for them is I will do it privately for them and whoever they want me to do it with. So I have the, the, the presentation in five video segments. And, uh, and so the three of us watch a segment independently and then we get together and we talk about it. And that is post-medic winning in its optimum form. Uh, the class is good, but the best is everybody watches it and gets together, and it's from the conversation as they say, "Yeah, I, I, I didn't really like this," or "Or here's what I think about that," and then you ha begin to have a a nuanced conversation about life in the valley of the shadow of death. Yeah, hello, hello. and that's really where you want to get right with people that are struggling is you want to get their thoughts on what they're going through as they try to get the fuck out of that place, right? And so um, so I was doing that on uh, on Saturday morning at 06. Because yeah. um, the people I'm doing it with are on the East Coast. And so right at the end of it, uh, a Marine... Um, 
who dragged his buddy to do this initially, but now his, <clears throat> his buddy's excited about doing it. But anyway, um, he throws out this quote. And, and so he's talking. And I, so I said to him, okay, final thoughts. And he starts talking about reading. And he said, you know, there's a quote that says, hard times create strong men, strong men create good times, good times create weak men, and weak men create hard times. And then, he, and then he went on to the next thing and blah, blah, blah. I said, wait, 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 stop. What'd you just say? And he says, like, what do you mean? And I said, no, 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 that quote, say that again. And he said, hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men. And weak men create hard times. And I was like, holy fucking shit man where did you get that he said i was in a book i read the book's called those who remain written by a guy named michael hopp so if you so right so i'm like wow that's that's good <laughs> right that's good um And so the book, um, let's see, I'll click on Goodreads. It is a, it's poke post-apocalyptic fiction, right? The final chapter in the Van Zant saga is here. The war between the Republic of Cascadia and the rogue nation of Western Canada is raging. With support from President Cruz in the United States, Gordon Van Zant has assembled a formidable army to march north and engage the forces of Western Canada, who have occupied much of the panhandle of Idaho. Gordon must defeat Jacques and his army swiftly, but to do so requires a final decisive battle. This battle will be, this battle will be do or die for Gordon and his fledgling Republic. But it's not the only problem Gordon is facing. With much of his attention focused on Jacques, he must also dedicate time to a political war brewing in McCall and Olympia. There he'll discover his adversary is the most cunning and cutthroat of any enemy has ever faced on the on the battlefield when it all ends some who stood with gordon will be lost and those who remain pray their sacrifices will usher in the new world they've been fighting for for so hard so this guy's written michael hoff has written um a bunch of books um let's michael hoff is a usa today best-selling author of almost 40 books, including the international best-selling post-apocalyptic series, The New World. He has made a prominent name for himself in both, in both the post-apocalyptic and Western genres. To date, he has sold over a million copies of his books worldwide, and many of his works have been translated into German, French, and Spanish. He is a combat veteran of the United States Marine Corps and is currently the co-founder and managing partner of Beyond the Fray Publishing, where he oversees daily operations of the company. I want him to publish my book. 
So me and Michael Hoff are going to meet. Didn't know that till just now. But anyway, so that quote got, I mean, it got me to thinking, right? And I, and I said, I thought I need to use that quote in, um, in post-traumatic winning. And I need to use it um, when I talk about the environment in which young people grow up in today. I grew up in a post-World War II world in the, in the early 60s and the, uh, the 60s and the early 70s. Okay, it was post-World War II, post-Korea, and in the midst of Vietnam, before Vietnam started and then in the midst of Vietnam. The people that built that world, right, were strong. And they they were insistent that, that you face life's harsh realities because they had. And so that's the world I grew up in. I mean, for instance, I mean, if you were, so if you were born, let's just say you're born during the Depression, so you were born during the 30s. Okay, but in the 60s, you had kids, and you were in your 30s. You were the child of, of parents who, who lived through and provided for you through the Depression, through World War II, right? They were the strong. So those hard, hard times created the strong. The strong, knowing what it takes to survive and thrive, right, create good times good times in my lifetime, right? The 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, create the weak. And the, and the weak create hard times. And we are living those hard times when people have to relearn lessons about why we have cops. When people um, have to learn uh, lessons about what it takes for us to live together as a civil society. When people have to learn uh, why it's important that the right people get elected to school boards. Otherwise, right, you will be, you, your children will be deluged with shit and it will not serve them well. And so I, I just, it, it's just like, this quote, like, I thought was just an awesome, awesome quote of the circle of life relative to the world that we live in. And I mean, it's, it's most true. The more insulated you are as a nation, the more insulated you are as a people, but the more inward you turn, the more your feelings are the most important thing in the world, and they are for many people. And so when your feelings get hurt, when your life gets rocked, it is a it is just the greatest catastrophe ever. And you compare and contrast that to a day when, you know, you had to, I mean, a hundred or so, more than a hundred now, years where you had to go look for your food. You had to grow it. And if you didn't do that, then you guess what? You didn't eat. Surviving, right, meant... I have a gun in my home because the sheriff is not going to get here in time. We provided for our security. We fed ourselves. I mean, those, uh, those life skills, they've been outsourced now 
food, get it at the supermarket. Security, the cops do that. So I, I lived this insulated, pampered world of the week. And then I think we're living in a time that is very difficult because it has been given to us by um, the weak. And they don't understand that there's a really difficult world out there and you got to prepare people for it. So, I, so that was one. My washing machine broke. Rudy actually gave me my washing machine. Um, and it, uh, it was, it's been leaking. It's out in the garage, so I didn't really give a shit a little bit. So it's been leaking. And um, so I went looking. I was like, I am not going to spend $1,000 for a washing machine. What in the hell? So I saw this outlet, um, and um, I went, and they take a lot of manufactured items that have been nicked and damaged. So I went, and you know everything's brand new. Got a washing machine for about five hundred and I don't know sixty bucks. And I will tell you this: my the washing machine. Rudy gave me. So, I mean, come on. Rudy lives pretty well. He's a pilot, right? His wife's successful. So, um, it's a side-loading washing machine. I say thumbs down on that. I cuz I you can't see what's in the in the washing machine. And I bought a top-down machine. And I wash so much more clothes in the last 24 hours I can't even tell you in that in one load so yeah I got a new machine a washing machine I come home from buying the washing machine and I come in the gate right now I have a doggy door the door from my house into the garage that is my studio right is open held open by a bungee cord that I've customized of course <clears throat> Going from the garage outside is a handmade doggy door. That's right. I went, I bought, I made the frame. Um, I put screen in the upper side so when it's warm, the wind can blow through. And then the bottom side, I took clear shelf paper. That's right, shelf paper. And I, um, I cut it and then I stapled it to the frame so the puppies as they're known in the house can go in and out at will when i'm not here they go through the door to the garage and then out that way there's also another one that i built for the sliding door on the on the other side of my house yeah so they have dual access right to the backyard so when i come home through the gate which i did Right. At some point, they move from the house where they're anticipating, as puppies do, right, my return. And then they, um, well, maybe I should back up. Okay, so hold that part of the story. So on Friday, on Saturday in the afternoon, I'm working out in the backyard. And I see Jack laying on the lawn, and it looks like he's gnawing on something. And I went, oh, what the hell? And so I, um, 
I walk over there and bigger than shit, there's some dead squirrel and Jack's gnawing on its carcass. And I'm like, oh, fuck. So I, I yell at him and shoo him, if you will. It wasn't that polite, okay? Get the shovel, grab the dead squirrel, I think it was, and um, could have been a gopher. Um, didn't see a big tail. Uh, so I grab him with a shovel, put him in a bag, tie the bag off because the garbage collection doesn't come till next Friday. Throw him in the garbage, right? As I start to lift again, I see Jack in a relatively a, a place maybe 10 feet away and he's now, and he's still fucking around with the grass. So I walk over there and here is some like either entrails or something of the animal. And so, uh, Jack, what the fuck, right? So, I then go get another bag and I get a shovel and I throw that shit in a bag. And then I get a hose and I and I squirt the area where it was. And so, um, and I make a note, I need to watch, right? Wild Kingdom Man now for the next 24 hours. Okay, so you know that happened. All right, so when I come in the back gate, once the puppies figure out which direction I'm coming in, not through the front door, but through the side door, they come running out. I come through the gate, Nobody greets me. That's odd. I now come around the corner of my house into the garage through the doggy door, but I don't go through the doggy door. I take the whole door off and I walk in. I don't get greeted by a dog. I'm like, did they get out of the house? What the fuck? I call them for the second time. Nobody shows up. Put my car keys down, go to walk in the house from the garage slash studio into the house I yell Joe's name and Jack's name, and Joe meets me in the kitchen. I'm where the fuck's Jack? So I go looking. Jack is like curled up, kind of standing on his front feet, shaking. And I'm like, oh, fuck no. And um, Jack has low self-esteem, okay? So when you hold him, he normally doesn't like to be held. Why that is, I'm not exactly sure. Not my fault. Though. Um, and so I sit down on the couch with him and I hold him. I'm like, did he have a heart? Did he have a stroke? Or did like, what the hell? And, but he can move all of his limbs and he's shaking and he's kind of curled up. And I'm like, that shit he ate yesterday so anyway um he just lays there and i sit there with her for about an hour and then i got hungry and um the um i went out in the kitchen to get something to eat and i um And Jack is a chow hound like no other. And 
when he'd move, he'd, he'd be, his back would be humped. Like he was protecting his stomach or something. And I've seen that before when he's eaten shit he shouldn't have eaten. And he's been sick. So I'm like, it's that shit he ate yesterday. So now I look up on the internet. Can your dog die ingesting a dead rodent or, and there's not surprisingly a lot written. And it essentially said, no, your dog will not die. However, comma, right? Not only whatever they eat, but the possibility that that animal could have been poisoned, which is how, you know, because normally dogs don't catch gophers, okay? Or squirrels. Um, there will be poison in there, but the poison inside of one of those animals it would not be very much, and it's not enough to kill your dog. So I'm like looking at Jack going, you motherfucker, right? So now I get, I'm eating some food from Colleen's My Greek Kitchen restaurant and that I like. They have the best spicy hummus in the world. Unbelievable. So anyway, um, and I look out into the living room and here's Jack now, because he's a chow hound, sitting up on the couch looking at me because I know and I'm thinking well I'll know if he's circling the drain if he won't eat so I got in the living room I pick him up I bring him out in the kitchen he stands up very gingerly and I start giving him food and he starts eating it I'm like Phew. all right so we have an appetite and uh anyway so long story short Jack is still on the mend and we'll see what today brings so anyway yeah, I thought I was going to have a dead dog on my hands yesterday. Um, so good morning to you. The uh, United States Marine Corps Band makes this morning official. I want to share with you this morning something that Glenn Greenwald wrote. I think Glenn Greenwald is... <laughs> I had no idea that Michael, that G. Michael Hoff, former Marine, Hilarious. Um, so anyway, um, I want to share with you something Glenn Greenwald wrote yesterday. And um, it's a pretty, I would tell you, it's a pretty amazing piece. I think Greenwald is one of the few true journalists left in, in America. He calls out both sides. And I mean, he's a liberal. Um, I, I got to chuckle out of something. You know, again, I mean, the voices of our time are becoming Greenwald and, and Bill Maher. Bill Maher said the other day of a poll that said 20% of America's youth are, you know, identify as gay. He said, pretty soon, everybody's going to be gay. <laughs> he, said, he said, what the hell? He said, look, man, I don't really care what you are. It doesn't matter to me, but come on. Right? And right, who could say that? Like, who dare, you know, question anybody's right to be anything they want to be, right, anymore. So anyway, uh, Greenwald talks about 
uh, in a piece that he put out over the weekend. The headline is Joe Biden's submissive and highly revealing embrace of Saudi despots. And so it's a uh, it's a great, great, great article that where Greenwald points out uh, the necessity of a of a nation um, that has to do of, of an, that operates in its own interest, right? What some would call real politic, um, so that you have a national interest and you operate in support of that. And then what he does is he talks about that when Donald Trump did that at on the backside of the murder of. Uh, the, that guy, I, I forgive me, I can't remember his name. His, his last name is Khashoggi, right? Trump, and, and I'll go through it in the article because because Greenwald does a good job. Trump tells Trump tells the truth and says we have to have a relationship with Saudi Arabia. He is excoriated. Biden's response is, "I will make Saudi Arabia a pariah." And now Joe Biden, hat in hand will go to Saudi Arabia on genuflected knee because the United States and his reelection and his party cannot stand both the second and third suppliers of oil in the world, Russia and Saudi Arabia, to be lined up against it. Right? The American people by then, again, average price of gas in the United States, over $5 now. Now, I'm from California. We're used to that shit. People around the rest of the country, they are not. And this is a self-inflicted gunshot wound based on Joe Biden's deal with the progressives and shutting down American oil production as soon as he came into office. And it's fucking stupid. And so anyway, Greenwald walks you through, right, um, America operating in its national interest, although we never like to say that, okay? <clears throat> but that is the way the nation works and how we consistently seem to start these wars. And then... The media's response to it, right? Other politicians' responses to it and how a different standard was used relative to Donald Trump. And so, again, you know, Greenwald's really interesting because he's a liberal. And what he does is he consistently tries to call out a media that has differentiating standards based on their own level of approval of what you do. And, I mean, he's a courageous, I think, fascinating guy for that reason. So, uh, good morning to you. The United States Marine Corps Band makes this morning official. Hold on. Could you read that quote one more time? This is the actual quote. I, I, I kind of PC'd it a little bit to use in a, in a mixed gender audience. But here's Michael Hoff's quote from Those Who Remain. 
Hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men, and weak men create hard times. Yeah. So, good morning to you. The let me reset my audio gauges here, so the audio plays correctly. Um, United States Marine Corps Band makes this Monday morning official. Good morning to you. <laughs> dedicated to a sergeant who um, who said that quote as we discussed post-traumatic winning. Thank you. betraying your whole life if you don't say what you think and you don't say it honestly and bluntly what keeps you awake at night nothing i keep other people awake at night for this campus had prepared him well <clears throat> i'm very confident that thank you very much <clears throat> if this was vodka it'd be a lot better speech <clears throat> Mm-hmm. <clears throat> 
but I'm not supposed to glamorize alcohol anymore. So young folks, you ignore what I just said. We just have to execute. And we are executing every day. And Sergeant Major and I are very proud of what you do. Doesn't mean we can't get better. We don't, we don't want to make a mistake to learn. We don't want to lose to learn. We cannot lose if we have to go fight. We got to do what these Marines did here 75 years ago. Persevere against difficult, challenging conditions and odds and win. You got to win. You know, I was thinking winning is a concept that I got raised on, but I mean, come on, such an old fashioned thing. Imagine a world where, um, and this happened when I was in high school, you know, we should really play athletics without scoreboards because the only thing that matters is if you do good, is if you try hard, right? No shit. That happened at my high school. Right? Yeah. They fired the football coaches. They all went to different places. You want to know why? Too old-fashioned. The world was changing. Winning, right? And so that, that, that whole soliloquy. Hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. So in the midst of the late 70s, right? Take down the scoreboards. Fire these people that are so... That are so well to, to the past. This winning thing. Like, what the fuck? Yeah. And so it goes. To the point where today, we live in such good times that we've, we're, we're, we're so fucking up young people by the way we parent and the way we educate them that they are killing themselves in ever increasing numbers when they encounter turbulence in their life that a medication can't fix and guess what medication fixes no turbulence all this does is numb you to that shit on that cheery note let me check the weather currently sunny and oh 84 in Quantico down the coast at Cherry Point, it is mostly sunny in 87. 29 Palms, sunny in 80. Camp Pendleton, cloudy in 65. Camp Smith in Hawaii, it is dark cloudy in 76. In Okinawa, it is dark cloudy 81. Manila is dark cloudy 83. And in Darwin, it's dark cloudy in 70. Yikes, man. Darwin's freezing now. In Kiev, it is mostly sunny in 83. That is uh, a look at your weather abroad. Currently at the home of Auburn Radio, it is cloudy in 67. Looking for a high today of 71 degrees. Tomorrow, 72. Wednesday, 72. Thursday, 75. Friday, 72. Uh, yeah, somebody took my recommendations for the weather this week and actually implemented them. Thank you. Yep. Yep. Mac, what kind of washing machine did you get? I bought a Samsung top-loading 4.5 something, whatever that is, 
cubic cubics cubics um and other than that not too much fancy on it yeah that's what i bought it's big and it loads from the top you can actually see into the barrel yeah which i like so anyway that is a look at your news um you know on a personal note um it was revealed over the weekend as the names of uh the five marines were revealed I know one of the families and um, uh, Steve Sachs is uh, played for Los Angeles Dodgers. His older brother and I are the same age and I knew him. I knew Dave Sachs because uh, I played baseball with him. I played winter league with him in Sacramento when we were in high school and I can remember playing winter league against him and then there was this little kid who showed up to play and we were seniors in high school and he was a sophomore. It's like, Hey, who's the, who's the, who's the kid? And we're like two years older than him. Who's that kid? Oh, that's Dave's younger brother. Oh really? What's his name? Steve. Stevie is what he, we, he, we called him or what he was known by. And they said, he's going to be better than Dave. And Dave was the best player around. And uh, Dave ultimately played for the Dodgers and I think coached for the Dodgers for a little bit. And Steve uh, was better, uh, a lot better than Dave and played for the a long time for the Dodgers. And I think he won a World Series uh, with them. Um, and um, his son was uh, one of the pilots uh, killed in that Osprey crash in um, in the vicinity well outside of Yuma uh, Captain John Sachs uh, was one of the pilots and there's articles over the weekend that talked about um, all he ever wanted to do was fly and I, I saw something that where Steve Sack said he'd be playing baseball in the outfield and all he would do would be look at the, the planes as they would fly over. Uh, the other pilot was Captain Nicholas P. Losapio, 31, of Rockingham, New Hampshire. Uh, crew members were Corporal Nathan Carlson, 21, of Winnebago, Illinois. Corporal Seth Rasmussen, 21, of Johnston, Wyoming and Lance Corporal Evan Strickland, 19, of Valencia, Mexico. Uh, the Marines were based at Camp Pendleton, part of a Marine Medium Tilt Rotor Squadron 364 of MAG-39. Um, So again, um, John Sachs is survived by his wife, Amber, uh, pregnant with their second child and their 20-month-old daughter. He uh, was born in Placer County, uh, which is just outside Sacramento where uh, we grew up. So anyway, um, 
That's uh, what two ospreys in the last three months. So, and again, no indication on 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 why that that happened. So, um, I want to talk about about the Glenn Greenwald article because I I think um, you know I think quality reporting is just so scarce these days. And again, if you do a search on Glenn Greenwald, you'll it'll take you to his Substack um, thing that he does. And uh, you can subscribe to what he his work. That's how I get it. I get it via email. So I'll just read you some snipp- snippets of it, right? Uh, here's the headline. Joe Biden's submissive and highly revealing embrace of Saudi despots. Biden's immediate abandonment of his 2020 vow to turn Saudis the Saudis into pariahs and his increasing support for the regime show the core deceit of U.S. propaganda. In 2018, President Trump issued a statement reaffirming the U.S.'s longstanding relationship with the Saudi royal family on the grounds that this partnership served America's national interest. Trump specifically cited the fact that Saudi Arabia is the largest producing oil nation in the world and has purchased hundreds of billions of dollars worth of weapons from U.S. arms manufacturers. Trump's statement was issued in the wake of widespread demands in Washington that Trump reduce or even sever ties with the Saudi regime due to the likely role played by its crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, in the brutal murder of Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi. What made the Trump era demands somewhat odd was that the Khashoggi murder was not exactly the first time the Saudi regime violated human rights and committed atrocities. For decades, the arbitrary imprisonment and murder of Saudi dissidents, journalists, and activists has been commonplace. To say nothing of the U.S.-U.K.-supported devastation of Yemen, which began during the Obama years. All of that took place as American presidents in the post-World War II order made a deep and close partnership between Washington and the tyrants of Riyadh, a staple of U.S. policy in the Middle East. Yet, as was typical in the Trump years, political and media commentators treated Trump's decision to maintain relations with the Saudis as if it were an unprecedented aberration of evil which he alone pioneered. Some radical departure of long-standing bipartisan American values, rather than what it was, namely the continuation of a long-standing bipartisan U.S. policy for decades. And then it talks about um, it's just the shit that got written about about this, and he does this because <laughs> he's then going to call the people on it. Perhaps the most vocal critic of Trump's ongoing willingness to maintain ties with the Saudi regime were then-Democratic presidential candidates Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. As a recent CNN compilation of those statements demonstrates, in the years prior to taking office, President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris and many of their administration's top officials harshly criticized Donald Trump's lack of action against Saudi Arabia and Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman for the 2018 murder of Saudi journalist and Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi. In a 2019 Democratic primary debate, Biden vowed, we're going to, in fact, make them pay the price 
and make them, in fact, the pariah that they are, adding that there is, quote, very little social redeeming value in the present government of Saudi Arabia. Harris similarly scolded Trump for his ongoing relationship with the Saudis, complaining on Twitter in October of 2019 that, quote, Trump has yet to hold Saudi officials accountable, adding, unacceptable, America must make it clear that violence towards critics and the press won't be tolerated. That Joe Biden was masquerading as some sort of human rights crusader who would sever ties with this, the despotic regimes that have long been America's most cherished partners was inherently preposterous. Right? And then he talks about President Obama in 2015 leaving India and offending the Indians, right, because King Solomon had died. Right, he goes through the Obama administration's role in empowering the Saudis in their attack on Yemen and the war in Yemen. He, he says this, in sum, no hyperbole is required to observe that the Obama bin Laden, the Obama Biden, I'm sorry, the Obama Biden White House, along with their junior British counterparts, was singularly responsible for the ability of the Saudi regime to survive and to wage this devastating war in Yemen. But that is nothing new. The centerpiece of U.S. policy in the Middle East for decades has been to prop up Saudi despots with weapons and diplomatic protection in exchange for the Saudis serving U.S. interests with their oil supply and ensuring that the use of the American dollar for the reserve currency on the oil market. That is what made the hysterical reaction to Trump's reaffirmation of that relationship so nonsensical and deliberately deceitful. Trump was not wildly deviating from U.S. policy by embracing Saudi tyrants, but simply continuing a long-standing U.S. policy of embracing all sorts of savage despots, despots all over the world whenever doing so advances U.S. interests. Indeed, and this is, this is awesome, what angered the permanent ruling class in Washington was not Trump's policy of embracing the ruling Saudi monarchs, but rather his honesty and candor about why he was doing so. American presidents are not supposed to admit explicitly that they are overlooking the human rights abuses of their allies due to the benefits that the relationship provides, even though the amoral, self-interested approach is, and for decades has been exactly the foundational ideological premise of the bipartisan U.S. foreign policy class. Yeah, see, you just don't read, like, quality stuff written like this, let alone with, you know, Greenwald pulls out the switchblade on a regular basis, which I love. Right? While bipartisan political and media class have spent decades insisting, and still insist, that the core foreign policy of the U.S. is to defend freedom and democracy and fight tyranny around the world, the indisputable reality is the exact opposite. Propping up the world's most brutal dictators who serve U.S. interests has been a staple of U.S. foreign policy since at least the end of World War II. In sum, the U.S. has always been and continues to be, I'm skipping through the article just so you know, 
not just willing but eager to support and embrace foreign dictators whenever doing so serves those interests. They're just as willing and eager to overthrow or otherwise undermine and destabilize democratically elected leaders who are judged to be insufficiently deferential to American decrees. What determines U.S. support or opposition towards a foreign country is not whether they are democratic or despotic, but whether they are deferential. Thus, it was not Trump's embrace of longstanding U.S. partnership with Saudi and Egyptian despots that represented a radical departure of the American tradition. The radical departure was Biden's pledge during the 2020 presidential campaign to turn the Saudis into pariahs and to isolate them as punishment for their atrocity. That is why it comes as absolutely no surprise, repellent as it may be, that Joe Biden aggressively abandoned his core 2020 campaign foreign policy vow regarding Saudi Arabia, the first chance he got. Far from turning them into a pariah state as he pledged, Biden has seamlessly continued and even escalated the U.S. tradition of propping up and strengthening what is quite possibly, plausibly, the world's most, the single most despotic and murderous regime. And then he goes through um, the United States giving Saudi Arabia more intelligence on both their enemies and also what's happening domestically in Saudi Arabia. But this was merely the start of Biden's embrace of the Saudi regime. Last November, the U.S. State Department approved its first major arms sale to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia under U.S. President Joe Biden with the sale of 280 air-to-air missiles valued at up to 650 million later. And now it appears that Biden is planning a pilgrimage to Riyadh to visit his Saudi partners in person. Last week, the New York Times reported that Biden, quote, has decided to travel to Riyadh this month to rebuild relations with the oil-rich kingdom at a time when he is seeking to lower gas prices at home and isolate Russia abroad. During the trip, the president will meet with Bin Bin Salman himself, who Biden's own director of national intelligence says oversaw the murder of Khashoggi. The rationale offered by the New York Times for Biden's planned trip was virtually identical to the arguments Trump used in 2018. The visit represents the triumph of real real politic over moral outrage according to foreign policy experts. So this is, this is the explanation offered by Anthony Blinken. Saudi Arabia is a critical partner to us dealing with extremism in the region, in dealing with the challenges posed by Iran And also, I hope, in continuing the process of building relationships between Israel and its neighbors both near and further away through the continuation, the expansion of the Abraham Accords. Right? As the New York Times put it, Russia and Saudi Arabia are close to tied as the world's second largest oil producers, meaning that as Biden, as the Biden administration officials sought to cut one off, 
they concluded that they cannot afford to be at odds with the other. And so what is this about? This is about the disgusting politics of the world we live in. And the disingenu the disingenu the disingenuineness of the people that stand up and say this shit. The other part of this is complicit in all this is the American media. Who doesn't say shit about it? Somebody sent me a uh, screenshot, right? Somebody was arrested outside of Brett Kavanaugh's home, right? With zip ties and my understanding is two weapons. Who was going to kill him? And Congress won't act on it. You have Chuck Schumer, who, who named Justice Kavanaugh by name, and said, you will feel the fury. And you have people like Chuck Schumer inciting shit like this. And then when people say, hey, we need to enact a law that protects them better, Congress won't take it up because the Democrats control it. And you watch this shit, and you're just like, but again, so my point is, that it's like how many times on the Sunday talk show was that story mentioned? Answer, zero. Like it didn't happen. Like it didn't happen. And the same thing with this. Is Biden being called out for getting on his knees to the Saudis? And you know why he's getting on his knees, right? The Democrats are screaming, we will get annihilated in November because the nation is going to be spending $6 a gallon pretty soon on, as an average on gas. And we are going to be responsible for it. Specifically, Biden's placating the progressive wing of the party. And as somebody who's conservative, all I can say is November can't come soon enough. And let me let me cut to the end of what Greenwald says. He talks about Henry Kissinger, right? And Kissinger's version of real politic, which is operating in your own interest. The undeniable reality is that Kissingerism, Kissingerian realism, the question of what is in the self-interest of the United States, or at least that is in the interest of a small sliver of American elites, is long and has been the core animating overarching ideology of U.S. foreign policy as is true for the foreign policy of all great powers. The bit about crusading for human rights and democracy and battling tyranny and despotism, it's just the propagandistic packaging for domestic media consumption. This is why both Presidents Obama and Trump and every president before them were willing to embrace many of the world's most repressive regimes, 
because they perceived that doing so would produce tangible benefits for American interests, however that might be defined. It is that same mindset that caused both those presidents, for instance, to view Ukraine as vital interest of Russia, but not the United States, and therefore not a country worth risking a war with Moscow in order to defend it, right? If you were going to defend it, right? Free people deserve to be free, yada, yada, yada. Yeah, well, we didn't really spring to that, right? We didn't really act on that premise. And the final paragraph says this, the core deceit about U.S. foreign policy that it is designed to spread democracy and vanquish tyranny serves no purpose other than to manipulate the American public through the government tool known as U.S. corporate media to support whatever new wars, obscene spending packages, or authoritarian authoritarian powers are demanded in its name. And therein lies the real value of the long-standing U.S.-Saudi partnership, the reason that Biden's immediate abandonment of his campaign pledge to scorn the Saudis is so illuminating. For any rational person watching Joe Biden continue and even escalate the decades-long love affair between Washington and the murderous despots in Riyadh should dispel these myths once and for all and illuminate the reality. The actual motivational scheme that drives the role that the U.S. plays in the world, both generally and in Ukraine. And that is operating in its own interest. And again, so again, I'm not a big fan of Donald Trump, but when you watch the the arguments that get made about what he did, and then you watch this shit, it's, I mean, to say it's head-shaking is not even close to being what it is (laughs) it's way more than head shaking so again i'll put the link in 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 this podcast to that article i would suggest you read uh the entire thing because it's that good right because it's that good and um yeah and i would tell you if i was you i would um I would subscribe to the Wall Street, to the Wall Street Journal, to his newsletter, Glenn Greenwald. And, uh, yeah, and I'd take a look at it every time it comes out. I do. I, I Again, and he feeds it to everybody, which is something very Tim Russert-like. And I was a huge fan of Tim Russert. He's smarter than shit. And his arguments he makes are, are logical. And, uh, again, I don't always agree with all of it. But Greenwald's one of the best, in my opinion. Um, Top stories in the news real quick. Another Navy ship sent to the Mediterranean to boost NATO presence there. The USS Forrest Sherman left Norfolk, Virginia on Saturday. So that is in the news. Next headline, Russia likely to seize control of eastern Ukrainian region within weeks, according to U.S. officials. Top headline in the Wall Street Journal, the Standard Poor's trades in bear market territory as stocks continue to slide. 
Uh, S&P 500 falls 3%. The Dow skidded more than 700% on inflation fears. Top story in the New York Times today is Trump campaign chief said election night was too early to claim a win. Top story in the Washington Post is Trump ignored advice to wait for accurate election results, according to his campaign manager. That's in the Washington Post. Top story in USNI News is a story about the Navy fired the head of its boot camp in Great Lakes, Illinois. They relieved the CO and the command master chief of uh, the USS Bulkeely. Uh, the Marine Corps identified the five crewmen killed in the Osprey crash. We've talked about that. And um, Japanese Prime Minister Kishida lays out an Indo-Pacific strategy in a Shangri-La speech. So um, if you never... Uh, if you don't know what the Shangri-La dialogues are, um, it's a forum in Singapore, and it's about peace in that region. And so um, interesting stuff goes on there. While the situation surrounding Japan becomes more severe, Kishida said the Japanese government will unveil a new national security strategy at the end of the year. He said He's determined to reinforce Japan's defense capabilities within the next five years and secure a substantial increase in the defense budget. Kishida also said Japan would not rule out any options, including obtaining counter-strike capabilities, though he stressed that Japan would not change its position as a peace-loving nation and it will carry out <clears throat> any effort in accordance with its constitution and international law. What he's dancing around there is... Japan's position on nuclear weapons. Uh, top story in Marine Corps Times is Talents and Passions, How Eight Amazing Military Teens Help Better the Lives of Those Around Them During the pand Pandemic. Next story, son of L.A. Dodger Steve Sachs killed in California Osprey crash. Next story, five Marines killed in California Osprey crash identified. Next story, Naval Air Forces to hold safety pause after a string of crashes. The latest Navy crash was a uh, the Navy's version of the Black Hawk, in, and everybody survived that. Uh, the other story in Marine Corps Times is uh, John Allen submitted his resignation as the head of the Brookings Institute. So he had been placed on uh, leave last week, I believe, at the early part of last week. And evidently over the weekend, he submitted his resignation. Um, top five stories in Early Bird. Naval Air Forces to hold safety pause after a string of crashes. Right. Number two, Israel's defense industry unveils new weapons at Paris Defense Confab. So what weapons have the Israelis, who are geniuses at this stuff, right?
I'm looking at what products. For dozens of Israeli companies on the Eurostat Eurostatory show floor, this is a defense show in Paris. The main theme is advanced technology. That includes the use of artificial intelligence, precision in either identifying threats or targeting systems, unmanned platforms, and high-end applications for ground forces, autonomous systems, real-time data links, thermal sites, and surveillance technologies. The Israeli Defense Force has a multi-year defense plan dubbed Momentum. The plan focuses on pushing technology to frontline units and knitting them together using data and communications. Israel's political leadership has recently highlighted a move into laser air defenses and across the spectrum of Israel's air defense industry, there is a drive to incorporate artificial intelligence as well as doubling down on target recognition and situational awareness. For example, Raphael has announced a new spike NLOS, I think that's non-line of sight, sixth generation precision missile on June 9th. The spike family is used in 39 countries. In Europe, it is sold under the name Eurospike. Raphael says its newest variant has an improved standoff range up to 50 kilometers, which can be launched in a salvo of up to four missiles, can be fired from one platform, such as a helicopter, and handed off for guidance to operators on the ground. It incorporates image matching abilities, according to the manufacturer. Interesting stuff. Next story, the Army involuntarily extending assignments for recruiters as the service scrambles to fill its ranks. Recruiting is, is a undertold story and how miserable that job is, right? Uh, recruiters have not been able to get on campuses in, what, the last couple of years? Army recruiters are having their assignments involuntarily extended for months amid a service-wide struggle to find new recruits to fill gaps in the ranks. In an internal memo in early June to recruiters viewed by military.com, U.S. Army Recruiting Command says it cannot continue its mission to recruit 60,000 new active-duty soldiers by October, the end of the fiscal year, without involuntarily extending recruiters' assignments. As of Tuesday, the service had selected 267 high-performing recruiters to have their assignments involuntarily extended, according to Brian McGovern, a spokesman. Typically, a non-commissioned officer who elects to be a recruiter will have the assignment for roughly three years in total. There are 5,319 active-duty Army recruiters. Let's see if it talks about the world they live in. All service branches are facing an uphill battle to recruit new talent due to the combination of hyper-competitive civilian job market and the Defense Department struggling to pitch Zen Generation Z on joining. On top of those hurdles, 
Only about one quarter of young Americans are even eligible to serve, mostly due to widespread obesity and minor criminal infractions. That in the news. First ever F-35 aggressor squadron stands up at Nellis Air Force Base. Congratulations to the Air Force. Um, CO Command Master Chief of the Destroyer Bulk Ely have been relieved. Overseas operations, Swedish and U.S. troops drill, drill I'm sorry, on remilitarized ba- Baltic Sea Island. North Korea slams Seoul's part in a massive U.S.-led RIMPAC naval exercise. And the first U.S. service member in Germany has been um, infected with monkeypox. Um, from Ukraine, Ukraine pleads for weapons as 100 to 200 soldiers die every day. Ukraine deploys anti-ship harpoon missiles at the edge of the Black Sea, according to their Minister of Defense. French, German, and Italian leaders will meet Zelensky in Kiev. From the Washington Post, Russia likely to seize all of Luhansk in the coming weeks, according to U.S. officials. Just for the a memo, U.S. officials haven't been right so much in Ukraine, except when it comes to electronic warfare where they intercept shit and then put it out. Ukrainian Special Operations Forces doubled in size while training with the U.S. Top U.S. Special Ops Commander says. Well, that's fantastic. How's that, how's that all working out? The same way that the, the great special operations phenomenon worked out in Iraq and Afghanistan? Yeah. You know, special operations, right? They suck the air out of the room, Right? Did they did, did did they tip the scale? Hmm. Sure enough, tip the budget. Did they tip the scale? Yeah. Anyway, that will do it on a Monday. Um, when you get a chance, check out that Glenn Greenwald article. I highly recommend it. Thanks for listening. I've got to go keep an eye on my sick puppy. So say a prayer that Jack gets better. And let me tell you what happened in all of that. That, um, And for those of you who have animals, you'll know. So when I came through the gate and Joe didn't come running out, And then I yelled his name. He still didn't come running out. I yelled his name a second time. He didn't come. The third time when I walked into the kitchen and yelled his name, he came into the kitchen. What was he doing? He was staying with Jack because he knew Jack was hurt. He knew something was wrong. So, I mean, animals are incredible things. And, um, yeah, Joe's stock went up yesterday. 
Yeah, for his loyalty to his friend, Jack. His brother. So, um, yeah. How about that? Anyway, um... Tonight, could have meet with somebody who lost a kid recently to suicide. Um... Yeah, say a prayer for a family that's struggling. 19 years old. Yeah. I'm Mike McNamara, the Salmarine Radio. Thanks for listening. If you tuned in late, um, don't touch that dial. Give me a minute to clip this thing, and you will hear it in its entirety. So have a great day. If I can help you help somebody, please don't hesitate. I'm Mike McNamara. This is All Marine Radio. Have a great day, and I'm out.